I'd like to now introduce Mr. Leonard Davis. Leonard J. Davis is professor in the English department in the School of Arts and Sciences at the University of Illinois at Chicago. In addition, he is professor of disability and human development in the School of Applied Health Sciences of the University of Illinois at Chicago, as well as professor of medical education in the College of Medicine. He is also director of Project Biocultures, a think tank devoted to issues around the intersection of culture, medicine, disability, biotechnology, and the biosphere. He has written numerous articles in The Nation, The New York Times, The Chicago Tribune, The Chronicle of Higher Education, and other print media. Mr. Davis has also been a commentator on national public radios, All Things Considered, and appeared on Morning Edition, This American Life, Odyssey, The Leonard Lopate Show, and other NPR affiliates. He has written many books, including his memoir, My Sense of Silence, where he describes his childhood in a deaf family. His new book is Obsession, a history. Please welcome Mr. Leonard Davis. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Gregory. Um, I'm just listening about Zocalo, and it's such an amazing organization. And thank, I'm so happy to be part of it. Thank you all for coming. <clears throat> so, um, I'm giving a talk today about obsession, and I actually was, we had a discussion before about should I use my PowerPoint or not. Apparently, that's not done that often here, but being obsessive, I thought that I, <laughs> I need to have a certain amount of control over my material. So uh, if, you, if you go along with me on this, I, uh, I wrote a book about obsession, and I'm, I'm interested in talking to you tonight about how obsession, or OCD, is, which is its most contemporary form, Ha is, a, is a disorder that is very characteristic of our time and also is one that has a history. And I think it's really important, and my biocultural approach is to say it's really important to understand that things like psychiatric disorders or affective disorders have a history. And the history is important for us to understand how they came about and how we think of things. So um, first of all, I want to talk about the fact that we live in a culture that ta takes obsession as a goal. We think that it's great to be obsessive on some level. Um, this is a quote from a New York Times Magazine article. Uh, You're probably not going to believe this, but I don't have an obsession, says the editor. I may not be obsessed, but I'm grateful for those who are. And the thing about the obsession is that we do live in a culture that is, uh, focuses on obsession as a cultural goal. And I just have some random uh, images that I've taken uh, here's an article from Time Out New York about obsessive New York, meet the city's most compulsive collectors. Um, this is an ad you may have seen recently from Stuart Weitzman on the bottom. It's, I put, made it in larger letters. It says, obsessorize. Um, and then, of course, the idea is that, uh, you know, these are the Calvin Klein ads for obsession. But the idea is that, you know, you, you, in terms of your love life, in terms of your sex life, you need to be obsessed. Anything less than that is not adequate. Um, and then these sort of images themselves sort of suggest some kind of sexuality that's hard to pinpoint, but that seems dark and obsessive. And, um, and I just was in the airport the other day and took a picture of this on my iPhone. Uh, a new, yet another secret obsession, as if obsession is not enough. You, know, you need a secret <laughs> obsession. Um, of course, one of our big obsessions is fat. Um, and uh, this is a book on the anthropology of an obsession, but we're, but it, we're a culture that likes obsessions and is obsessed by things like food. This is a, f somebody actually just sent me this uh, the other day uh, from Brooklyn, New York, indulge in a healthy obsession, harbor fitness. Um, so we're obsessed with fat, but we're also obsessed with being physically fit. Um, of course, 
all geniuses are obsessed. And here's a book about Madame Curie. Um, and of course, we're obsessed with our movie stars, you know. And and uh, we have millions of magazines that tell us all every little detail about them. Uh, here's a quote from. Um, uh, an actor uh, who's saying, obsessive people, they're the ones who make history, aren't they? Obsessives, you may not want them in your house, but you want them to tell you stories. Uh, so there's a kind of general sense that this is a good thing. Uh, we have movies about people with obsessive compulsive disorder, as, uh, as good as it gets with Jack Nicholson. And of course, you have TV shows in which a character like Monk is actually a better detective because he has OCD. And these are all sort of signs of our times. We do live in a culture that is very focused on obsession. Um, we have self-help books or books about OCD, like this one, The Boy Who Couldn't Stop Washing, uh, which was one of the earliest books about OCD. And then, of course, the issue about obsessive love, um, you know, that you can love to, when passion holds you prisoner. You can love too much. And this raises the whole issue of sexual addiction, which we've just recently all seen of David Duchovny going and checking into a clinic for sexual addiction. So we, we, we can promote the idea that you, can, you should be obsessive in love and sexuality. And then we also pathologize it. Uh, there's a memoirs that are like this book by Emily Collis called Just Checking, which is actually a memoir of a woman who has OCD. Um, so the, uh, I want to just go through the DSM, uh, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the, which is the book that basically all uh, therapists and psychiatrists use to, to characterize what you have. And so this is a sort of contemporary definition of OCD. Um, it, the first thing is that if you have OCD, there's two things going on. There are obsessions and there are compulsions. And obsessions are things that you think and compulsions are things that you do. At least that's the description. So the first thing is that obsession is defined as a recurrent and persistent thoughts, impulses, or images that are experienced as intrusive and inappropriate and that cause marked anxiety or distress. And that's an important point I want you to remember because I'm going to make a very important point about it later on. Um, but these are thoughts that, that, that you have that you don't want to have and that you're distressed that you have. Um, another uh, trait is that they're not simply excessive worries about real life problems and the person attempts to ignore or suppress such thoughts. Uh, the person recognizes that it, the thoughts are a product of his or her own mind and the reason that's important is because if you were hearing them from, uh, if you thought they were coming from outside of you, you'd be psychotic. So this is a, and one thing important about <laughs> OCD is that it's, it's a disease or a disorder that's of a disease of rationality. People with OCD know they have it and they don't want to have it. They're aware they have it. It's a disease about being rational, not irrational. Um, compulsions are defined as repetitive behaviors. We all know hand washing, ordering, checking, putting things in size place, that kind of thing. Uh, the behaviors are not connected, so, that, so it says in the DSM, to any realistic way to what they're supposed to prevent. Now, um, the, the thing is that that's OCD, but if you look in the DSM, there's also something called o obsessive compulsive personality disorder, and it's something different, and, or so they say. And, and, and one of the things that's important about it is you have to have four or more of the following, and I'll talk about that four or more issue, because one of the questions is like, why four, not six? Um, so the, the thing is that here are some traits. You're preoccupied with details, rules, lists, order, organization, or, or schedules. Um, you show, shows perfectionism that interferes with task completion. I always say that that's sort of a classic, you know, a academic uh, trait. Um, is excessively devoted to work and productivity to the exclusion of leisure activities and friendship. 
Um, is overly conscientious, scrupulous, and inflexible about matters of morality, ethics, or values, not accounted for by culture or religious identification. Again, that's another important point I want you to hold on to. And you're probably right now like saying that's me. I know, you know, um, that's the <laughs> reaction that people have all the time is that these things actually are things we do. Uh, most of us do, actually. And the other thing is unable to uh, discard worn out or worthless objects. <laughs> that's usually the person you live with. You know. Um, is reluctant to delegate tasks or do work with others unless they submit to exactly his or her way of doing things. You all know people like that. Um, and adopts a miserly spending style. Okay, so that's obsessive compulsive personality disorder. And what's the difference between OCD and OCP, right? Uh, the difference is, I'm oh, sorry, rigidity and stubbornness. Um, the difference between OCD and OPD is exactly this thing that I talked about, marked distress. And this really starts to raise the question about why I'm calling this a postmodern issue. Because what causes someone to have marked distress? In other words, if you're a person with OCD, you're doing this stuff, you don't like it, you wish you could stop. If you're a person with OPD, you're doing this stuff, you love it. It's part of who you are. It's your, it's your personality. So what is it that causes marked distress? And um, you know, there are, first of all, I, I don't want to um, say that there isn't really distress associated with OCD because there are cases of people who, for example, wash their hands 200 times a day and are bleeding and in pain. And there's no question that there is a, a real distress associated with certain aspects of OCD. But the other thing about marked distress, I think it's really important, is that it's, it, it, so much of it has to do with the reactions of the people around you. I have the Simpson dysfunctional family up there, so you can see like what you know what that means. Um, so, for example, if your partner or your friend or your spouse says, "You know, I'm really concerned about you. You're you're doing these things," um, you will begin to feel marked distress. Uh, you're also internalizing the the norms of your culture. You know, if you happen to be a person who, and also your religious and moral upbringing. Like, for example, if you happen to be an Orthodox Jew. And your, a part of your religion tells you that you need to say, you know, blessings over 25 different things during the day and mutter these prayers. That, if that's part of your religion, your cultural norm, you'll be fine. But if you're a person just doing that randomly, you'll feel marked distress because there'll be this disjunction between what you're doing and what you're not doing. And it also turns out that people with religious or moral upbringing of a certain kind tend to have more OCD. And one of the reasons for that would be um, that if, you know, for most of us, if you're, you have a normal day, you have a, a bizarre thought or a, a strange thought, you might just go, wow, I just had this really weird thought. I, that's weird. But if, you if you're religious and you have a, 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 a thought that has to do with you know, uh, blasphemy or, um, or, or some kind of se uh, sexual thought about your God or about whatever, you'll be very disturbed and you will try not to think about it. You'll try to suppress the thought. And once you try to suppress any thought, it's impossible. It'll just come back. Like my random example for that is if I say to you, don't think about a pink elephant in the next five minutes, you see you're already failing. So the thing is that, you know, if you, the more you suppress the desire to think about the pink elephant, the more you will think about it. And so the, the, my, the societal factors in something like this are enormously important. Um, one of the things that I think that's interesting is that the, if you look at the beginning of the DSM, which is that book I remember that I said that, that every psychiatrist, therapist, and so on has to give you a diagnosis for in order for you to get covered by insurance, it says the following. The specified diagnostic criteria for each mental disorder are offered as guidelines for making diagnoses because it's been demonstrated that the use of such criteria enhances <laughs> agreement among clinicians and investigators. 
So the, so the point about it is that, this, that what they're really saying is like we made this so that we could agree with each other instead of coming up with different diagnoses. But it, it actually shows you that there is a kind of social constructedness about the very idea of diagnosis. And I want to talk a little bit more about that. But I did put postmodernism in the title, and I just want to very quickly give you like uh, just a, what, what postmodernism might mean. And it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to say that it has to do with believing that things are socially constructed, and I'll talk a little bit more about it. It's also believing that there are cultural, cultural influences that, and that meta-narratives, that is to say like big narratives like history and so on, are problematic, that you can't make one big narrative for everything. And that people, it's also a suspicion of specific simple causalities. And it's also a suspicion of claims that you're neutral or objective. So it, this whole thing about postmodernism puts explanatory systems and languages into question. And so what I'm saying is that one of the things I want to do with something like a diagnosis of OCD is to put that into question, to be a little critical about the idea that you can define something like complex human behavior so easily. Um, so one of the issues is that when I g have given this talk, people say to me, are you saying, like I have OCD, I have a friend has it, I have someone who's really suffering, are you just saying that it's made up, that it's just socially constructed? And I think that an important thing to understand is that something can be socially constructed and real. And I have a really good example of this, which is this. You know, money. Money is something that, you know, you don't find it in nature, you can't find it under rocks or on trees. And, but it's, but it is totally socially constructed. We make it, we print it up. In fact, we're doing a lot of printing up of it right now. And, um, and it's based on a kind of very complex social interaction. It's not real. It's not, it's not uh, naturally occurring, but it's real. Everybody knows it's real because if you don't have it, and look, what's, look what can happen to you. You know, if you're, especially if your financial system gets a little screwed up as it is now, you can see what happens. So the point is that something can be socially constructed and real. It's not an opposition. Um, Okay, so what I want to do is just say that one of the issues about psychiatric disorders, and I'm going to give you a little bit of theory and then I'm going to give you a little bit of history, is that psychiatric disorders um, originally uh, were, the idea was to take, model them on like physical disorders, you know, physical diseases. And the classic traditional model of disease is this, that there's a pathogen, something that causes the disease, there's a symptom that the pathogen causes, like the common cold causes you to sneeze, there's a remedy, there's a, you have to discover the mode of transmission, and very important, you have to publish it in a professional <laughs> journal. And, and the reason that's important is because if you don't publish it, nobody knows about it. You know, no other doctors know about it. So here's the, here's the really basic one, cholera. You know, the, the, this is the bacteria that, that causes cholera. Here's the place where it was you know, transmitted in London, a, a pump on Broad Street. You have Dr. John Snow, who is the guy who discovered it, and here's the article that he published about it. So that's like the classic model of, I have, but I'm proposing that we think about disease and disorders in a somewhat different way, what I like to call a biocultural model of disease. In a biocultural model, we think about the individual and the individual's interaction with the practitioner. In other words, there's a thing that goes on between you and your doctor or the doctor who's observing you, and that's part of what the uh, concept of disease is. On top of that, there's something that I'm calling the symptom pool. And that is like any given period of time, there's going to be a list of symptoms that you can choose, and they can be divided up in different ways. And different cultures do that differently. Uh, and then there's also the environment. And the environment is, can be your friends, your family members, your surround. And people telling you, you've got, you know, you've got this disease, we're worried about you, you, know, you should do something about it, you should go to a doctor. And all of those things together form the disease, what I'm calling a disease entity, to give it a little bit more flexibility and give it a little more of a postmodern sense that it's not this absolute fixed thing. 
Um, the symptom pool, I think, is important because like, uh, I spent a lot of time in Italy. And people in Italy talk about their livers. You know, when they talk about getting ill, they talk about, like, oh, my liver. I don't know anyone in the United States who talks about their liver. <laughs> but if you're in Italy, you have like, long conversations about how's your liver today. And you know, it's in their symptom pool. It's not in our symptom pool. Well, here's a, I'm going to just give you a quick list, and I'm not going to read them on this one. But this is a list of possible symptoms that you could have that are vague, that they're generalized. Here's even more. And these are all listed as symptoms, by the way, for chronic fatigue syndrome. But they, but they could be fibromyalgia. They could be anything. And the point about it is that how you draw, what lines you draw around it, you can create different illnesses at different periods of time. And there are different illnesses at different periods of time. Another way that we also, another new kind of disease which OCD is part of is something you might call a syndrome. And a syndrome is a disease made by a committee. That's why I want to go back to the DSM. Um, you know, the DSM is this book, where, and they're making a new one, by the way, the DSM-5, which is going to list a whole bunch of new diseases that you didn't even know were existing, like shopping, shopaholicism and, uh, you know. Um, and so the thing is that the, the people, there's actually a group of people sit around in a room, and they say, like, how many, you know, you, there's five symptoms or six symptoms, and they'll come up with them, of which you have to have, so let's say, four in order to get the disease. You have four, then you have the disease. So... Um, <laughs> So the thing is that, that, that what's interesting about that is, for example, uh, something like bulimia, if you throw up twice a week, if you cause yourself to throw up twice a week, you don't have bulimia. If you cause yourself to throw up three times a week, you have it. So, the, so there's, somebody has to make these decisions. And, you know, um, there, are other, I mean, there are other things like that, too. But the thing about OCD is you could see that in the DSM there's listings of how many you have to have. And these are, again, created by people in rooms with closed doors and lots of other issues beside that. So... Um, so the thing is that I'm saying that psychiatric diagnoses are socially constructed, uh, and there are, there, the DSM enforces consensus. We saw that the disease model with physical diseases provides an analogy. Um, I'm going to skip over some of this slide. Anyway, so the thing that I want to say is that um, uh, I want to give you a little bit of history about obsession in, in the past and how it came about. So the first thing is that before the 18th century, this is, if you were crazy, this is what you were. You were either a maniac, raving, furious, or distracted. You were either melancholic, you were an idiot, you were a lunatic, or you were obsessed or possessed. And the obsession-possession thing is the thing that interests me the most. And those were caused by demonic possession. That is, the devil uh, inhabited you. And, and the difference between being possessed and being obsessed is that if you're, if you're possessed, if you're upset, well, okay, if you're obsessed, it means that the devil has taken possession of you. And the term is from Warcraft, by the way. It has to do with besieging a citadel. So the devil has besieged your citadel and has surrounded you and has not broken through the central, you know, the moat and the door. So you're still inside. And you know, so you're able to say, if you're obsessed, you're able to say, I know that the devil is obsessed, it has me. The fact that you can say it means that you know it. But if you're possessed, you no longer know it. The devil's broken in, taken you over completely. Linda, Love, you know, Linda Blair, you know, uh, it's, the, it's the, the whole idea of being possessed. So the thing about these categories of madness in, before the 18th century is that they're all about being totally crazy. You know, you can't be a little crazy before then. You, it's, a it's like being pregnant. You know, you can't be a little pregnant. So 
But then, in the and, and, and here's the two sort of big categories. This is a statue from the entrance to um, Bedlam Hospital. With, on, you know, with, with the character on the left is the depressed melancholic, and on the right, the raving character in chains. So that was the two poles be, uh, of madness before this period. Um, and here's a picture of, uh, you know, from an insane asylum in the 18th century, a madhouse of a raving man being uh, restrained. Then there's a new category that comes in, and they, they're diseases that we no longer generally approve of, uh, hysteria, hypochondria, vapors of spleen. But the important thing about them is that they're characterized by partial insanity. You don't have to be completely crazy anymore. You just have to be a little crazy. And it's really the birth of neurosis, right? It, it's the idea that everybody can be a little crazy, and, it's, and you're rational. You're not irrational. But this is the beginning of the idea of obsession that you're aware of it, you're partially crazy. It's the kind of Woody Allen you know, idea. And I, in a group like this, I would, I would just generally say, like, how many people here who are not neurotic? Would, would you please raise your hands? <laughs> no one ever raises their hand. So I mean, the thing is that um, it becomes a state of modernity to be a little crazy, um, partially crazy. It's what I call the democratization of madness. And, you know, er, and then, if, in that case, everybody needs a therapist, everybody needs a doctor to treat this. And people were well aware of it in the t at the time. In 1768, Robert Witt wrote, in my opinion, the generality of morbid affections so depend on the nervous system that almost every disease might be called nervous. They discovered nerves and they went nerve crazy. And, um, so, and then there started to be popular books in the 18th century, books like this one that sold very well on, on, on nervous disorders. Um, Thomas Trotter, wrote, at the beginning of the 19th century, we do not hesitate to affirm that nervous disorders may be justly reckoned two-thirds of all diseases of which civilization is afflicted. So we've gone from a thing where nerves suddenly enter our lives in this way that they never did before. And the other thing is that not only that, but it's the best people who, in the other way, in the earlier model, it was the outcasts and so on who were mad. But now it's everybody. So George Cheney, who wrote this famous book called The English Malady, says that it's not the, the people who get it are the liveliest and quickest natural parts, whose faculties are the brightest and most spiritual, whose genius is most keen and penetrating, and particularly where there is the most delicate sensation and taste both of pleasure and pain, not fools, weak or stupid persons, heavy or dull souls. So then the idea is that it's the geniuses and the sensitive people and so on who have uh, nervous problems, and, and what is the nervous problem in particular in this era? It's that you do one thing too much, you know. Um, if you dwell too long upon one and the same thought, which is exactly the idea of what obsession is. We see obsession coming into being, and it gets called num a number of things in the 19th century, one of which is monomania, which is, which is the, the big diagnosis. The other thing is that almost every famous person in the 19th century, and I have a little selection of them, uh, writes their autobiography and puts in their autobiography their nervous breakdown. So you have to have a nervous breakdown in order to be a genius. So you have Ruskin, you have Florence Nightingale, you have Emile Zola, uh, and many other people in the 19th century. And th that's a key point. So suddenly it becomes a sort of important part of being modern, of being, of being um, you know, sensitive. Uh, the, this is a picture of La Salpetre, which is the biggest uh, insane asylum in Paris. And, the, and in the 1920s, monomania, which means you think about one thing too much, was the most common disorder. Um, now, then, then what you have is an interesting phenomenon, that psychiatry begins to start. And so psychiatry cuts its teeth, if you want, or becomes the thing it does by studying 
the monomaniac and the obsessive. And studying, I would say, it obsessively. So you, you really have a profession coming into being by the obsessive study of obsession. And so here's an example that they, they believed at the time that you could see monomania in people's faces. So here they took photographs of monomaniacs, they painted them to see if you could come up with a physical correlate to what's going on inside the head. And you can laugh about this, but later on it becomes, we do it now, only we call them brain scans. And we're looking for a physical trace of something. Um, they, uh, one of the great uh, psychiatrists of the 19th century, Charcot, who was one of Freud's teachers, uh, studied in this obsessive way. Every, you know, every week he would put uh, people on display uh, for their symptoms. So there's this obsession with studying the patient, uh, taking photographs of people in hysterical attacks and so on, becomes the way that psychiatry makes its name. And of course, the classic guy, uh, Sigmund Freud really started psychiatry by looking at hysteria, but particularly by looking at obsession in the case of the, of the rat man, who uh, was his great case about uh, notes on the case of obsessional neurosis. So it becomes the way that psychoanalysis begins as well. It becomes a very important part of our culture. In literature in the 19th century, there are lots of, of, of uh, monomaniacs. And I actually began this book because I'm a literature professor. Uh, one day when I was running, and I I'm a, I'm a marathon runner, so you, know, you need to know that uh, about <laughs> obsessive behavior. But um, so I was running, and I was thinking, like, what's the difference between 18th century characters and 19th century characters? And I realized that right that's 19th century characters, starting around 1850, are all uh, obsessed. So here's, uh, for example, uh, Balzac's old, old Gorio, who's obsessed with his daughters. Ahab, great character, who's obsessed with the white whale, and of course the white whale, who's obsessed with Ahab. <clears throat> you've got every character in Edgar Allan Poe obsessed with cats, heartbeats in the floor, you know, uh, un you know ravens, unable to get things out of their head, uh, burial alive, you know. Um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, case of obsession. And of course, Crime and Punishment is the great example where a guy suddenly is walking down the street and thinks, what if I kill this woman? And then can't stop thinking about it until he does. Uh, even the characters in Dickens, uh, in a way, Dickens forms his characters by giving them obsessive traits this is the famous you know, one of Uriah Heep, who always rubs his hands together, as you can see in the picture, and says, I'm so humble. You know, that, but that's sort of like the way we think of Dickens' characters. They all have a little physical tick, and they always have a little verbal tick. And we think, wow, you know, they, they're all obsessives. Um, so uh, it didn't work. OK, uh, this is the, the increasing value of obsession in our culture. So this, what this should show you and doesn't show you, because it, it's the Mac versus the PC, is a picture of, of uh, Michael Phelps. Um, you, you know, a guy who spent his entire life with his head under the water. Uh, we value that. We think that that kind of behavior is good. We pathologize people who have OCD, but we think that the people who are in sports um, or in business, I mean, this is a book for obsessions of extraordinary executive. Uh, the idea is that, you know, you can teach executives by having them study obsessive people. They're also doing that with mania, by the way. They're teaching exe executives how to be manic uh, so they can produce, you know, uh, default uh, uh, credit swaps at a fantastic rate. Um, I'm sorry, the, I just put these in today to make, the, uh, but uh, in music also, and I, there's a picture of Axl Rose, who I don't know if you've been following, but he spent 15 years on his last album obsessively doing it. And in, in art, this is a picture of the, uh, the Watts Towers uh, of somebody who spent his lifetime you know, uh, doing, and we value that. We think it's really important. 
Uh, the, I have uh, some artists also who have obsessed. I think that one thing in art is that obsession has actually become a kind of made art more and more collectible. So the first, I'd say, a really obsessive artist uh, that was called that was Adolf Wolfley. I don't know if you know his work, but he was in an insane asylum in, uh, at the turn of the century. And, it, and he did these pictures, you know, endlessly complicated, repetitive pictures. Uh, they actually tried to limit his amount of paper and, pen, and pens. But he had a, fortunately had a good psychiatrist who noticed that his work was valuable. And now none of us can even touch this stuff. It's so expensive. But, um, but, but the idea was that the link between insanity and, um, uh, or at least compulsive behavior and, and art begins to be developed. Uh, I have, uh, this is, a, this is a, a painting by Jay DeFeo called The Rose. It took her. Um, it, it took her 15 years to do. Uh, it started out as a small painting, and it became this gigantic uh, work that she literally carved the paint into. It weighed about 2,500 pounds. Uh, and there's a long story in my book about her uh, fascinating story about this work of art. But she was she died, and the work was completely lost in a way. It was it was it was in it was actually entombed in a wall in uh, San Francisco uh, State. Um, and because it, nobody could move it. And then uh, in the 1990s, the, uh, they did a show on beat art, and they uncovered it. The Ford Foundation gave them all this money, and they reestablished it. But the thing that, that goes with the story always is how long she worked on it, how she only did this one work, how it was, you know, and that makes the work valuable. Then there's also uh, Mark Lombardi, whose work you may know. He um, did these intricate dra line drawings of the flow of power and money, like from the Bush family to the House of Saud. He was sort of had a paranoid element to it. And then he committed suicide. So everything, you just Google Mark Lombardi, and it's all about obsession. And his work is extremely collectible. Um, and finally, the per person I uh, focus on here is Judith Scott, who is a deaf woman who was also had deaf and Down syndrome, had no language, and made these uh, textile works of art compulsively every day of her, you know, she never stopped. She, she would finish one work, say bye-bye to it, and start on another one. She did not know she was an artist, but her work is quite collectible now and, and quite amazing. Um, but sh she was obsessive, but pushing it even to the limit because she wasn't, even she wasn't aware that what she was doing was obsessive, but her work has this obsessive quality. So um, one of the things that I want to talk about, uh, just to finish up, is that, and we can talk about this more maybe in the Q&A, is that uh, OCD went from being a very rare disease in the 1970s, and you can see it was 0.05% to 0.05%, to now one of the uh, four major forms of uh, uh, psychiatric disorders or uh, in, in the world, according to the World Health Organization. So it goes from being... Uh, one out of 20,000 to one out of 100 to one in 10 in less than 30 years. And the question is, how does that happen? In other words, if the argument is that OCD really is this sort of tangible physical thing, it lives in your brain, um, which is now the most current explanation, how could we have this meteoric rise of it unless there were cultural social factors that were involved? So, and no one can agree on OCD. What causes it? There's, there's genetic explanations, there's neurochemical ones, there's structural, brain structural ones. There's, people argue, well, if it had that meteoric rise, it had to be something in the water, you know. It had to be something in the air that's causing, it's like a, you know, a pandemic. Um, the current explanation is that, that you have a broken brain and, and that you can see the spot in your brain where obsessive compulsiveness lives. 
This is very dubious to me because it's a very complex behavior. Uh, any complex behavior, you can't just find a place in your brain. And no one has actually found and agree upon where it lives. And even there are even like weird, you know, uh, online things like if you use Dr. Schwartz's four-step method, you'll see a change in your brain. Uh, I had an interesting conversation with a guy who runs a, uh, an fMRI clinic who said they don't, there's a reason they don't show you the ears. Because your ears change color too. When, when you do these kind of things. Because you have blood flow, you have you know, uh, uh, oxidation. So you have to take this with a little bit of uh, uh, you know, salt. So um, there's several different treatments for OCD. There's no one that works well. It's not, it's not a disease where there's a huge success rate. Uh, generally, 30% of the people get better, 30% get worse, and 30% stay about the same, which is not a very good. Um, but the thing that happened is that, is that Prozac came along. And Prozac and SSRIs basically uh, drove, if you want to argue that part of it, drove uh, OCD into being this big thing. And uh, you know, the website of uh, Prozac happily shows you OCD. And just the other day, uh, Medtronic now has been allowed to do a deep brain uh, implant uh, for OCD to see if that works. So basically, what I'd like to end by saying that what is OCD? Is it a brain disorder? Is it genetic? We don't know what it is in terms of all these things. And I would argue that it's a socially constructed postmodern disorder uh, that, that has a very complex origin to it, and it isn't one simple thing. Uh, great folks, we will now begin our Q&A portion of our lecture tonight, and we want to remind you that this is being recorded for both video and audio, so we do ask that all questions be asked into the microphone, and if you could please state your first and last name before your question. Also, at this time, our donation buckets will be going around, and again, we do appreciate any and all of your support. Thank you. You have questions? Uh, Tom Berthesel. Uh, my question is, do you see a difference between the person who has an obsessive feelings like you've described and the person who builds up anxiety that's relieved uh, uh, that's relie relieved at that point by a compulsive action that's, that, that relieves that anxiety and then it builds up again. Yeah, I think that there, that's the general pattern. It's, you know, people who have OCD describe the fact that it's sort of a rising feeling of discomfort or anxiety that d carrying out some action seems to temporarily help until it it rises up again. So I mean, that's that's the way that it's that's perceptually described, um, and and I think that that's probably true for a great many things. You know, uh, one of the things we we want to focus on is that there are continua of human behavior. I mean, I think everybody here, if I say the following words to you, cell phone or iPhone, check your email, you will begin to get the rising feeling of you have to do it. And I think every one of us knows that feeling. Um, if that's associated with checking your email on your cell phone, it's kind of socially acceptable. If it's associated with other kinds of things, it becomes problematic. So, so much of it is the context, uh, not simply the mechanism that you describe, which is accurate, but the context and how people around that person react to it and how the person, him or herself, reacts to it. Don't you want to check your email now? <laughs> Thank you for a great talk. Um, you use, my name is Macarena Gomez. Um, use the term modernity and postmodernity, and I'm wondering why you don't use the term like late capitalism or consumer culture and what that relationship and intersection might be. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I, I could use that. I, I think I'm, I'm tr stressing postmodernity about the categorization. <clears throat> but, you know, late capitalism is good. I mean, 
I, I, there's an argument that I didn't get into here, but I do in the book, uh, which has to do with, you know, part of the thing that drives this incredible increase in OCD is this, is the, you know, the financial interests involved. I mean, it, there's an important element of trying to get every single American on at least one drug, if not two or three. You know, you know, and, and once you're on those drugs, they course, they course through our collective blood system, and people make money on it. You know, and drug companies, we know, I mean, I, I don't want to say, I, I mean, it's obviously we know this, that drug companies have a lot invested in ed, so-called educating the public. So, for example, the rise in OCD, and there are other, you know, sort of uh, lifestyle diseases like uh, situational affective disorder, which used to be called shyness, uh, you know, <laughs> or... I, are you watching the TV ads for Yaz? You know, are you, have you seen them? You know, which is basically pathologizing premenstrual syndrome, which has already been pathologized. But um, so there's this huge, uh, you know, effort to get out checklists, get people to be aware of it, to begin to um, uh, think of ourselves as ev as living as every aspect of our lives is possibly medicalized and pathologized, and I think that there's a you know the great thing about it is that people do it themselves. No one's forcing you. You know you're you 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 know and and there and the way that that works is so complicated. I can't get into it all right now. But yeah, there's a huge um, aspect of uh, of profit involved in that. Mr. At, Davis. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Ready. We have a question here to your left. Hi, my name is Scott Schnee. Uh, what happened to older disorders? Where did our lunacy and vapors go? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, if you think about the sort of symptom pools, little circles get drawn around things. And one of the things that fascinates me about psychiatry particularly is that um, uh, if you, you know, I, te I've gone, I teach in medical schools and I teach psychiatrists. And I, I'm interested in teaching them the history of their profession, but they don't really, not interested. Um, because uh, the thing about psychiatry, and, and it tends to be true for science in general, is that you're only interested in now, because everything else in the past was wrong. You know, in other words, all those, that, you know, what you're doing now is correct. All of the things that you diagnosed before and categories, things like vapors and spleen, they're wrong. But of course, they never think that now will be the past of later. You know, so. I always say, like, you may not want your plumber to know the history of plumbing, but I think it's really important that your psychiatrist knows the history of psychiatry. Um, so something like vapors, uh, vapors kind of morphed itself into other, other categories. And hysteria has kind of stayed around and taken different incarnations. Spleen, you know, we don't talk about our spleens too much. Kind of we, gone the way of the liver. Yeah. We have a question to your right, far right. Uh, my name is Justin Reisman. Um, I was wondering if you've looked at this phenomenon in other kinds of societies as opposed to just our capitalist, you know, <clears throat> democratic society. Yeah, you know, I, I have a couple of comments to make about that. I mean, one is that uh, one of the things that fascinated me when I started reading, uh, and I encourage you all, you know, you go to the scientific journals and read, read them because you'll demystify a lot. They, every article about OCD said two things. One was that it was uh, in every culture in the world. And the other thing it said was that it was occurred throughout time. They, in other words, there was no historical aspect. It was always there and all over the world. Then you start looking at the footnotes. And it turns out throughout time means Lady Macbeth and one or two other people in the past. And that's throughout time. You know, that's, you know as it, I wouldn't allow you know, my students who wrote papers to use that as a source. The, the across the world, they say across the world is based on two studies. 
one of which looked at OCD in six countries, uh, and one of, them, one of the countries didn't have OCD. Uh, so the thing is that the question is, uh, is, I think it's very tied to our particular culture and lifestyle. And I've just been following myself um, OCD uh, suddenly catching on in India. You know, um, and uh, there's been a rash of articles, educational articles, like, do you have OCD? Are you doing this and that? And I just read an article yesterday about a young woman who was addicted to, in India, had, had OCD, was addicted to sports, you know, was doing sports all the time. And you just think, like, oh, you know, in India, being thin in the past was, you know, had a very different connotation to being thin now. You have to have a whole culture around you that emphasizes various things in order for you to then participate in it. And I think one point I want to make, which I didn't make, and I think it's really important, is if we live in a culture that is a culture that encourages obsessive behavior, to a great degree, we have to be the most obsessive we can in all these areas that I've tried to show you, that there are people who will do it well. You know, they'll be the ones who, you know, get the bonuses. Well, maybe they didn't do it so well. But, you know, they'll be the ones who are like the, the, the type A's or people like me who, you know, I run marathons, I write books. I've channeled my obsession into very... But then there'll be the people who fall off the cart, the people who can't handle all that, OC, or that pressure to be obsessive and who end up doing things like, you know, ordering things or, you know, doing behaviors that are uh, tied up with it but are now considered pathological. So I think that we have to be very careful that, that we have two, that the two sides of it are connected, that the obsessive doctor working and writing articles is linked to the obsessive patient who has now got the pathologized dark side of the same behavior. Mr. Davis, question at the front here. Hi, I'm Juliet. I was just wondering what you felt about meditation. Now, you didn't talk about how meditation can be efficacious in calming the mind and creating a space. Is that worthwhile in your investigation? You know, I have, I actually have seen, there are some people who are working on meditation in regards to OCD, and I, I, you know, I don't know how effective it is, but I can tell you one thing is that uh, talk treatments and, be, and, and behavioral modification uh, seem to be as effective as purely a drug regimen, and there is even evidence to show that if you do brain scans that you see changes in people who are using uh, non-invasive methods like that. Uh, Rory Johnston, um, all of these diagnoses that you've described have got all these words in them like excessive and appropriate and so forth, which are all highly subjective. Does the, does the whole process really collapse if you try to analyze it scientifically or logically? Yeah, I really think it does. I mean, I've spent five years on this, I, and I, I got a Guggenheim to do this work. I've been really immersed in it, and I, I have to say that... Uh, you know th that what you come up with is realizing that 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 the the, so the scientific journals that seem to be the ones that we all put our credence in are very simple-minded. You know, I mean, I was just I was just teaching a uh, a course at Einstein. Uh, I was a class at Einstein to fourth-year medical students, and we were talking about diagnosing someone with OCD. And I said, "How long does it take for you to diagnose somebody?" He said, ten minutes." You know, basically the way that the system works is that you have, ten, you have an encounter with someone that you don't know, and within 10 minutes you diagnose them, and then things happen once you diagnose somebody, once somebody gets a label. So I think that, I think that the issue is that th these are actually very complicated human behaviors that for a variety of reasons we've s utterly simplified and then treated the simplicity as profound knowledge. Mr. Davis, question to your left here. Hi, my name's Amy Liu, and I 
like you to return to the issue of religion, mm -hmm. because it seems to me that throughout time, religions have incorporated obsessionality with devices like rosary beads and, and the labeling and, the, and the, the ideas that surround obsessive behavior, like the Catholic anorexic saints, for example. You know, they were clearly sick people. They were operating under the same obsessionality as today's anorexics, but they called them saints for doing it. Right. I, you know, I don't have too much to add to that, except I, I think you're right. Freud wrote a whole book on, you know, uh, religion as a form of obsession. Um, I would say that it, rather than condemn religions for doing that, I would say that they've taken advantage of a kind of human behaviors um, and made it work for them. You know, so I think that, uh, you know, uh, it is a tendency of human beings to do this. We've pathologized the sort of extremes of it but it's not necessarily a bad or a problematic thing. We have a question midsection. Yes, hi, my name is David Trilling, and I was wondering, um, first of all, you, you, uh, you don't mention ADD, which is something that so often is, is tied to it. Um, and my second question is, is, what is your scientific background, um, the basis for, for, for some of your analysis? Sure. Thank you. Um, I, you know, I, in one of my slides, which I cut out because I was told not to put too many slides in because I was going to, I needed to be more, uh, less nerdy is actually the term I was used. But, <laughs> um, but, you know, ADD, ADD, there's a continuum of ADD and mania in some ways, or, or OCD. ADD is that you, you can't focus on one thing too much, and OCD is that you're focusing on one thing too much. So they're kind of part of a very large extreme. My, my background is that I have a complicated, I, I don't have a degree in science, but I've done, a, I, I trained at the New York Psychoanalytic Training Clinic, and I've had a long involvement with medical ethics and bioethics. Okay, we have time for one last question. Anyone with questions? Yes, hi, Professor. Um, Glenn Kessler here. Uh, welcome to Los Angeles. Uh, we sometimes use language in a way here, I don't know how long you've been out here, is almost to render it meaningless. Um, for example, we overuse superlatives. We say things are the best. And while doing so, we nod in, each we nod in agreement with each other as to create an affirmation or a consensus. So it seems to me that there's, in, in this whole OCD thing that you're talking about, that um, it's, uh, it's a lot of words. Uh, because in the extreme sense, or, or the diagnosis, is just, you know, it can be anything. Because it seems to me in the extreme sense that uh, perhaps it's, uh, you could classify it as extremely anal retentive behavior or there's, there are ways to pin it down whereas it's just not a relative phenomenon. You know what I mean? There's more of a way to classify it. Yeah, well, I think, that, I think that the point that you're on about is that, uh, you know, your use of, la use of language, diagnosis is finally, when it, in the end of the day, a use of language. And, it, and uh, I think we privilege it maybe in a certain kind of way uh, and give it a kind of, you know, if someone takes 10 minutes to diagnose you, how much privilege do you want to give it? You know, uh, and I think that, that that point is one we have to think about all the time. What does it mean to be labeled? What does it mean to have words be put on us? And then we ex take those words to our deep self. Thank you so very much for coming out to Sokolo again.